0: we are systems within systems. Health cannot be simply regarded through the lens of an individual pursuit. We must understand ourselves as completely interconnected to the planet, to the ecosystems, to the food system, to the energy systems. All of our surrounding ecologies are bearing
1: on our health. I'm Tanya Kersen, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. As I was preparing for this episode, I did what I often do. I sat up my neighborhood coffee shop here in Minneapolis to read and take notes. Every once in a while, I'd look up from my book and notice people putting on their face masks to walk into the coffee shop during a global pandemic. I noticed the graffiti-covered plywood on the windows of local businesses from the popular uprisings after the murder of George Floyd and i notice the thick haze of smoke dimming the sun from 150 wildfires raging across the canadian border for my two guests today all of these are symptoms of a society and planet that are inflamed dr rupa maria is associate professor of medicine at the university of california san francisco where she practices and teaches internal medicine she is a co-founder of the do no harm coalition and co-founder of the Deep Medicine Circle, an organization committed to healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, and learning. She's also toured 29 countries with her band, Rupa and the April Fishes. Raj Patel is a research professor at the University of Texas at Austin's Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs, a professor in the Department of Nutrition, and a research associate at Rhodes University in South Africa. He's the author of Stuffed and Starved and The Value of Nothing. Their new book is Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Rupa and Raj, welcome to Real Food Reads. Thank you, Tanya.
2: Thanks so much for having
1: This book, more than any other I've come across this year, speaks so clearly to the current moment we're living through, and especially to the intersections of public health and racial justice that are becoming more visible due to both COVID-19 and the anti-racist mobilizations of the past year. So I want to start by inviting you both to share a little bit about the origin story of this book. When did you start writing it? Did you start it after the pandemic began? Because it seems... Impossible to me that you could write such an epic book in such a short time.
0: It was almost impossible and it was very challenging and um, difficult, but we actually did start writing it um, right. um, I guess right when I pulled my kid from school in the beginning of March, um, we were seeing the first hospitalized patients at UCSF. With COVID, I work as a hospital medicine doctor and um, I was watching people. Kind of crump in the hospital, um, really deteriorate rapidly in ways that I had never seen before. And unfortunately, we didn't have COVID tests at that time. So I got the sense that something big was happening. Um, and that same week, uh, the book sold, and Raj and I um, got down to writing it. But we had thought about this book for a couple of years. It's a story that has been, you know, the sum of so many um, experiences that both Raj and I have had in working with communities in struggle and myself um, that I've seen in witnessing um, the bodies of patients and what what those bodies have taught me and what those family
1: members have taught me about why people are getting sick. A central premise of your book is that colonialism is making us sick and Western medicine, which you also call colonial medicine, is so invested in the system and in its language and in its ways of knowing that it's Essentially, unable to properly diagnose, much less cure, the root causes of many of our illnesses, and and then you you know you go into what it means to diagnose sickness through a decolonial lens, which takes us to some very different kinds of interventions, and and I want to get to that. Uh, but first, um, the question I want to put to you, Raj, is how has colonialism harmed, and how does it continue to harm our health?
2: Thanks, Tanya. I mean. It- you know, for for people coming in uh, to this conversation or reading this book with a, a, a combative mind, it, it might seem like saying things like, "Well, well colonialism uh, is making us sick." It gets it precisely wrong because surely modern medicine is fantastic and people are living longer than ever and everything's great. Uh, but the you know the, the the dark story here is that the processes behind uh, uh, modern colonialism uh, the processes uh, which imply the imposition of a a cosmology in which certain humans are separate and better than the rest of the web of life, including most humans. That idea of separation uh, is alive and well. uh, And it's not just making us bodily sick in terms of inflammation, but it's also setting the planet on fire. So here's here's the, the, the idea that we're uh, really riding from the the origins of colonialism in 1492 all the way to the present day and, and the idea here is that uh the way that colonialism and capitalist colonialism in particular operates uh is not just not merely through the domination of one place by uh a, a certain group uh you know overriding the preferences of the people who are already there but a, a certain transformation in the way that those relationships of power work um the history of colonial capitalism that we sort of lay out in the book is, uh, uh, you know, a a story about how some people in what they came to call society were able to dominate the rest of uh, what they called nature. So there's this dividing line in the history of civilization, of of capitalist colonial civilization in which society is basically sort of propertied Catholic white men in the first instance and then through a, a sort of long history of people fighting back. Uh, gradually, you know, society unwillingly accepts the working class, and uh, occasionally some people of color if they've got property, and occasionally women, um, and occasionally, very occasionally, uh, you know, formerly enslaved people. That relationship between society and nature allows uh, domination and separation. And when you have these relationships of domination and separation, you can. Uh, extract away, you can set fire to things, you can treat nature as an infinite uh, resource and an infinite garbage can. Uh, And the consequences of that, of course, are uh, a country, a planet that is literally on fire at the moment. Uh, But also, uh, you know, the the exposure of uh, our bodies, not just to the sort of toxins of industrial chemistry, uh, but also to the insults and the ongoing cultural oppression uh, that layers itself into the bodies of uh, folk who are oppressed by colonial capitalism, so w- women, people of color, the uh, working class, and those those technologies of colonial separation uh, build up in our bodies and make us much more predisposed to things like COVID at the moment.
1: I thought that it was really helpful the way both of you describe um, inflammation and what the causes of inflammation are, and those causes speak to you know exactly what you're talking about, Raj. Violent separation from the land, separation from nature, exposure to structural racism, generational trauma—how um, all of these things imprint themselves on the body, um, and and uh, and and lead to and lead to inflammation
0: yes and as our understanding in medicine has evolved there was a distinct moment um in the 17 and 18 hundreds where we started to see a shift in understanding where the cause of inflammation was um so there were you know very metaphorical descriptions of fevers um that had nothing to do with a physiological response but more a description of how someone looked or how they felt um in medieval times and then In the 1800s, there was the understanding that actually no inflammation and fever was caused by a phenomenon in a specific place in the body. Um, And that's where we started getting the understanding of the itis, the myocarditis, and the colitis and the um, pneumonitis. So, all these different parts of the body, itis is a shorthand for um, inflammation. It's a suffix to denote inflammation in a particular organ. And what Raj and I are saying, the next level of of finding the locus of disease in the structures around the body. And the body is just having a normal response to damage. Our understanding of the immune system that we're still taught is that it's uh, the system in our body that helps distinguish between self and other, um, between foreign and non-foreign. Um, and in fact, this is a part of that same enlightenment um, error of thought that separates our mind and our body and separates you know, humans from the environment as if we are somehow separate from it. And so that ideology of separation and division, which is part of the colonial structure, um, is really... Incorrect when we look at what the immune system is really doing. And the immune system isn't there to distinguish self from other. It is there to see when the body is being damaged or to respond to that damage or the threat of that damage. And it does so in a way to restore the optimal working conditions of the body and what is known as um, homeostasis. And what we're seeing is that, you know, usually when you have damage, the inflammatory response is activated and um, the body responds to the damage. Hopefully that wound or that insult is removed and cleared, um, and then homeostasis is restored. However, in a world in which our food system is full of poisons, our soil has been degraded, our waters have been, again, poisoned, our air is now toxic, um, the state is, you know, ripping um, children away from families at the border, Um, all these different levels of damage happening, um, whether they're environmental, biological, microbiological or social um all of these are having their impact on the immune system and the body is responding with inflammation
1: i think it's important to 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 highlight what you what you just said and what you point out in the book which is that inflammation itself is not the problem or inflammation is not the disease inflammation is actually the system trying to heal itself Exactly.
0: And that is so powerful because it means we can't, our bodies are trying to heal themselves. And in the face of ongoing damage, that response does not turn off and the body ends up harming itself. Um, which means that as if we can remove those damaging structures, we can allow for the balance to return. Um, and the, and what's so amazing about biology and, and our bodies and our ecologies around us is that they're, they have that ability to spring back um, if we can catch them before they've been irreparably
1: damaged. One story that I, I thought was really um, illustrative also around how colonial systems have shaped um, the field of medicine, I, I think we tend to think of science and medicine as Though they're somehow inherently apolitical, <laughs> um, and of course they're not outside systems of power. So you t- you tell the story in the book of how you know the field of infectious disease was developed specifically to support the imperial project, um, specifically to protect British colonial troops from contracting malaria in the subjugation of India. So it, in in other words, anti-malarials were developed, um, but were never intended to treat the people being conquered, of course. And, and malaria is still a major cause of illness and of death in the global South.
2: I think you're, you're right. You're, you're One tends to think of medicine as being this utterly benign thing that uh, sort of just... Uh, toddles along and tries to make uh, the worst effects of uh, militarized colonialism a little bit better. Um, and, you know, because they're, they're doctors and they're not the, the people with, you know, the bayonets and uh, they weren't the people who are really killing indigenous people. No, the doctors were there to to wax Hi- Hippocratic and do no harm. Um, and that's that's not how medicine works under colonialism or works under colonialism. Um, because, you know, the, the it, it's very interesting, for example, that uh, the Chichona plant that, uh, from, you know, from which quinine uh, was extracted was itself stolen through operations of uh, subterfuge uh, and, and British colonialism, uh, smuggled out from uh, Brazil to Kew Gardens in London, uh, near, uh, you know, in the vicinity of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, and then uh, sent from London off to India, where it was grown again as uh, a protective, a prophylactic for white people. Uh, and, you know, that, that you know, it, it, it may sound like, oh my God, you won't believe what they did in, in the 19th century. It was just, uh, just horrible people going to Brazil and stealing stuff, uh, you know, just to be able to improve things for uh, people, you know, in, in the colonial metropole. But that's exactly what's happening right now in the 21st century with, Uh, You know, some of the the more recent research that we've seen on uh, the gut microbiome, for example, Um, you know, listeners may be familiar with the idea that our gut microbiome is essential to our thriving. There are creatures within us that are not human, that allow us to be human. And our relationship with these creatures reflects the world around us. And so as we have uh, rendered the world around us more toxic, our internal microbiome has uh, become more and more distressed uh, and Less diverse, and so the gut microbiome of people in uh, urban areas in the global north is really very denuded compared to uh, indigenous people, say, in the Amazon. And so, what what, what do we find? But uh, you know, unscrupulous medical personnel suggesting that in order to rewild our internal microbiome, we should go to Brazil and steal their poop. Uh, and that idea is, you know, I mean, it's laughable, and yet it is precisely the kinds of theft. That was what the golden era of colonialism was about. And um, it doesn't work because in order for these microbes to thrive, they need to be in relationship outside our body as well. In thinking that all we need is a poo transplant to rewild things, we're forgetting that our bodies don't stop at our skin. They they are part of of webs of relationships internally and externally. And if if the external microbiome isn't doing well, a macrobiome rather, then our internal microbiome won't either and that's why uh, you know it, 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 the, the, these colonial errors of uh, separation as we were talking about earlier on uh, are ones that aren't just of academic interest they're happening right now at the bleeding edge of medicine
0: so the modern medicine in the us and in other colonial or um, societies organized through uh, colonialism does not help everybody and we see that with the health disparities it's not only because of you know, poor access to care. It's also what someone gets into care, what's going on with the attitudes and um, understandings and even down to the medical technology that is used and how that has all been programmed through a system of white supremacy. Um, so how does that disadvantage um, our community members who are Black, Indigenous, Lat- Latino, um, even when they come to seek care? These are deeply entrenched racist structures within medicine um, and and within the power structures of medicine, and so that is why we really call on the need to decolonize medicine to to radically transform the practice of medicine so that it it can be used to serve all people and to serve people in a culturally relevant, respectful way.
1: There's sort of two sides of this. one side is of course the the white supremacy and settler colonialist. Uh, mindset and and views um, that are inherit inherent to the the medical profession and how you know women and people of colors uh, pain is historically not seen or not heard. But then uh, you know all, the other side of that is you know I think you describe in the book um, physicians and medical practitioners as um, technicians and not healers, right? Yeah. And I think
0: that, you know, if you think about like with the issue of, let's say, women in medicine, like women having heart attacks um, have been shown to survive their heart attacks and do better when they have a woman physician caring for them in the hospital. Um, And black babies, when they are born and cared for by black uh, neonatologists or pediatricians, survive um, more when, um, as compared to having a non-Black physician. So there are these race-gender concordances that we see that are actually speak to what happens, you know, what the level of negligence or inability to hear women that is coming from the male providers or an inability to understand what's happening for Black babies. Um, So it's so deeply embedded in the culture of medicine that part of the presence of Black, Indigenous, and female, and femme-identified people being in medicine is just even our presence is already having an impact um, because it's forcing these conversations and it's creating culture change. It's not enough. It's not fast enough because our people are dying and they're being impacted by the lack of um, access or, or um, the lack of appropriate care, even when they do access care.
1: Absolutely. I think what this brings us to also is, you know, the the stories that we tell and, uh, you know, whose voices are heard and, and whose voices are not. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I really love um, about your book is how you talk so much about storytelling and about narratives. and And it's one of the things that we believe at Real Food Media is that narratives really matter and that stories have the potential to harm, but also to heal. So, you know, I love how you describe, you know, just the concept of a diagnosis as a kind of story, right? Um, But also how the stories that we share and pass down through our cultures are themselves a key component of our health. So can you Talk a little bit, Rupa, about the role of storytelling in health um, and in the kind of medicine that you practice.
0: Oh, stories are everything. So you can usually find out what's wrong with a person by listening to them. Just by listening, like 95% of the time, a patient will tell you the diagnosis if you just sit and listen really carefully to how they um, conceptualize what is happening to them, how they piece it together together. Um, and in that listening of them telling their story, you will hear a lot more um, about how they bring in their world and their their family or the systems that they're around that are influencing their health. Um, but in general, doctors interrupt patients within the first you know minute. We don't We are so bad at listening to patients. Um, it doesn't matter what race or gender you are. that is just like across the board, we are terrible listeners. And so this is the problem right now with what we're looking at, like, let say, for example, with the pandemic or climate change, even we're operating with diagnoses that don't encapsulate the way that we are systems within systems. We are not individuals. Health cannot be simply regarded through the lens of an individual pursuit. We must understand ourselves as completely interconnected to the planet, to the ecosystems, to the food system, to the energy systems all of our surrounding ecologies are bearing on our health, Um, the ways we relate to each other that bears upon our health. And so for that, we need another order of diagnosis. And that's what we offer in this book is another way of thinking of the story of why we are getting sick in the ways that we are in, in order to give us clear treatments that can affect these rising rates of inflammatory disease instead of simply describing that they're happening.
1: Another a narrative that's really extremely difficult to shake is this narrative of progress, right? So in the world of food and farming, we're constantly having to do like a mental gymnastics around this idea that technologies developed in the last 70 years in laboratories in the global north are, are by definition better than technologies and practices developed by small farmers over 10,000 years. Um, and, and it's not a partisan mindset. It, it spans the, the far right to, to the far left. Um, so when it comes to your book, I, I can already hear the contrarians saying, you know, as you, as you said, Raj, um, you know, didn't Western medicine vastly lengthen human lifespan? Um, and, and then there's the really cheerful question, you know, don't we eventually have to die of something? Um, so <laughs> I'm sorry to play devil's advocate, but, um, I, I really want to know, you know, like how you answer these questions.
2: The joy of Inflamed and, and writing it with Rupert was to be able to go through, uh, a, a, a huge volume of peer reviewed academic literature on, uh, the current science around, uh, ecology, around climate, around, um, you know, uh, the gut microbiome, I mean, you know, a full spectrum of science. Um, and we're big fans of science. But the, the problem with uh, the, the way that contemporary science and technology works is that it's only technology if it's got a patent on it. So you know, there's something weird about the cosmology in which we're we're conducting these kinds of scientific inquiries where uh, unless someone is able to profit from something, uh, it doesn't count as a technology. So, you know, educating women and girls, for example, which is the best uh, technology that we have to be able to uh, end malnutrition and uh, increase welfare uh, levels uh, across a range of indicators. is not considered a technology in the same way as, uh, you know, soy and peanut plumpy meal is, for example, in, in the world of food and international development. Uh, and yet one of these technologies is demonstrably brilliant and the other one is a stopgap measure to stop people um from dying of malnutrition but it does nothing nothing beyond that uh but you know gender equality as a technology is not considered that because uh it's not scientific in uh, the policed way that modern science uh, capitalist science colonial capitalist science uh polices its boundaries so what we're fans of is a science that increases the number of peers at the table that decolonizes the table of science to ensure that everyone gets to be there, uh, and that way, not only do we get to have the kinds of science where uh, the testimonies of and and the the, the scientific experiments of uh, indigenous people, of farmers, of women seed keepers across the world is respected, but also um, we get to to understand that science uh, historically hasn't happened without an analysis of its consequences. Uh, you, you don't just get a scientific experiment. Um, get your mate to sign off it on it, get a monopoly pan, patent and then make billions from it. Uh, that's not how science historically has worked. Uh, historically, science has been like, okay, we have to live in this world with this new uh, technological uh, tweak. Uh, are we safe with it? Are, are our children safe with it? Does, it? does it harm us? Those kinds of long-term scientific experiments are beyond the boundaries of capitalist science because it's not profitable to ask the question, well, what would happen if we set fire to the planet? Uh, but, of course, that's, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And so we don't come to bury science, we come to bury capitalism. It, it, it is colonial capitalism, we, we submit, uh, that is responsible for a planet inflamed and our bodies inflamed. But we are fans of science uh, and we want more of it. And we see that capitalism is in many ways the enemy of science because capitalist science is a very strict police, you know, police force. Um, establishing the boundaries of who could know and who cannot, who can feel and who cannot, uh, and who's who can experiment and who uh, are merely the subjects in those experiments.
1: I think that uh, like your point is is so good that you know gender equality may be a much more effective technology, as you called it, um, to address hunger and you know gender equality and racial justice may be. Um, more effective uh, deeper more long-term solutions but we're really unlikely to arrive at those as solutions if we're operating within the boundaries of a colonial you know with colonial tools um, of diagnosis right because not only are you know gender equality and racial equity not necessarily profitable they're also uh, threatening (laughs) to uh, white supremacist patriarchy.
0: Yes. And I would say that um, that these power lines are actually rendered invisible um, in colonial society. Um, you see that in medicine. It's like, oh, well, we're all just human. But of course, all the studies have been done on white men. Um, or we're all just, you know, um, there are these generalizations made that uh, purposefully obscure um, the differences and distinctions and what COVID has demonstrated into our faces, that bodies that have been subjected to social oppression over generations respond with way more inflammation in the face of this virus than bodies that haven't been. And so um, those disparities that we see and we've been talking about have a root cause. Um, And it's not, um, you know, it's not just the inability to access care. It's the whole system that's been created around um, Black, Brown, and Indigenous bodies um, and poor white bodies. Um, So how, how, if we want to have the end of this pandemic? What is the real end game here? Um, and it's to boost our immunity through transforming our communities to what it's just transforming the way our world is set up, um, because there will be more of these things coming um, until we re-enter a proper balanced relationship with the web of life. And that means, uh, you know, the abolition of food systems that treat animals like uh, something to be just grown to be eaten Um, and and re-entering relationships of care towards other beings in the web of life. Um, And so this is, you know, we can play this incremental game that's happening right now, like, oh, masks and vaccinations. And yes, I'm all for masks and I'm all for vaccinations, but that's not going to get us where we need to be. Um, we need to be looking at the colonial cosmology that insists that those are the only things that we need to be doing right now, as opposed to radically transforming our world. Um, and COVID is simply putting the you know, exclamation point on what climate
1: activists have been saying for decades. I feel like this brings us back full circle to our conversation around colonial shaping of medicine and how immunity is viewed as uh, with this very kind of militaristic, kind of uh, colonial metaphor of the self fighting off foreign elements or pathogens, um, as opposed to seeing immunity as uh, balance and even as cooperation between the self. And as you put it, um, all the, the organisms that live in us, on us and around us so that, you know, there, there's no immunity um, or health without this context of, of relationships, you know, which, you, which you're calling also the web, web of life.
0: Exactly. Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, this is not a simple fix and it's not something that can be done individually. So we didn't write a self-help book. We didn't write a book that will help you lower your inflammation by eating differently. We wrote a book that is um, going to you know, share a map or a, an outline of things that community groups are engaging with and building right now that can help transform inflammation for all of us. Um, because if all of us are not moving um, in that direction, Um, then none of us can actually be healthy. Um, And so this is really an important moment um, on a planetary level to start opening our minds to you can vaccinate the United States and have Delta growing in India. It does matter, yes, to get vaccinated, but it does, you know, beg the question that, you know, can you eliminate these things or address these things incrementally? And absolutely no, you can't. There must be a global um, effort um, to keep people safe.
1: Yeah, and in this in this work and in, in this analysis as you untangle the logic of colonialism and domination that drives modern disease as well as modern medicine, you always return to indigenous worldviews and the ways that indigenous people and ways of relating to the human and non-human world can be paradigms of of health and repair. So I I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit to that. And I'm also, you know, I'm also curious to like what that means in terms of if Indigenous worldviews are the primary model that we need to look to, um, would you also say there's a responsibility to first uh, fight for repair and, you know, rematriation of Native lands and, and solidarity with Native people at the center of all of this?
0: Absolutely. The learning that I have seen and received from different elders in different indigenous communities has uh, profoundly impacted the way I think of disease and and wellness and the possibility of health. Um, And so I believe um, that if we look at the damage to our earth that colonialism has created and we look at the vitality that is still present in the biodiversity being stewarded uh, by Indigenous people around the world, it is an, a critical and imperative time to support their agendas. So if their agendas are to get their land back and to reassert their sovereignty in their lands in order to help heal the planet and heal the people, I'm 100% behind that. Um, so that that is a critical part of this work, is not to think that those people who have been part of a legacy of um, intellectual error from the Enlightenment here in these lands, will have solutions that will be anywhere near as whole as what our Indigenous communities are currently articulating.
1: I want to conclude by talking about um, what I think is a perennial challenge for movements and, and for policymakers, which is... How to deal with uh, complexity without getting paralyzed by it so you know my sense is that holding complexity is is sort of a muscle that that we have to exercise um, you know i I'm someone who's had some training in political economy and ecology and, um, you know, but I was finding myself a little overwhelmed um, by this book. And I even had a hard time putting my questions together for this conversation because I was like, okay, I want to talk about deforestation and how our digestive tracts are like a forest and how our lungs look like upside down trees and how that connects with climate change and the decline of soil biodiversity, which leads back to gut health. So until I've just completely lost the thread of my question. So how do we train ourselves to be able to hold all of these connections without getting psychologically paralyzed? That's the first part. Um, and and also, how do we move from systemic diagnoses to a place of action?
2: I, I think that part of the, the, the knowledge that has been lost uh, has been lost because uh, the number of teachers has been cut back. Uh, now, what, what I mean by that is that The way that modern medicine, but also that modern society works is uh, to have just a few authorized outlets for knowledge. What was exciting about writing this book is that we uh, thumbed our noses at that, uh, you know, these sort of colonial siloing of ways of knowing, because historically they've always been, um, you know, bound together. So, for example, uh, you know, Western... Colonial capitalist civilization is very weird in thinking that food and medicine are two different things. Mm. Uh, it's very odd to, to to live in a world where, uh, food, you know, medicine is given to you by certain people in white coats, whereas food is that thing that makes you sick. Mm. As opposed to understanding that, uh, in fact, that there are ways in which food and medicine are part of a, a broad, coextensive—not a spectrum, but a web. There are you know webs of knowledge that have been. Sundered by this process of uh, you know of of our, our specializations, and so I love your question because what I think it's really asking is how do we how do we get to learn better who are teachers going to be, and that's one of the things that we're excited about in this book is that there is a plurality of teachers from the ground beneath our feet to you know listening to the testimony of the planet to listening to the testimony of our children uh, and recognizing that there are uh, many more places for knowledge than we are used to. And now that, you know, all of a sudden that may feel like, oh my goodness, that there's not just the medicine information coming off my phone, but now I've got to listen to the soil and now I've got to listen to my kids, uh, you know, whatever next. Um, and 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 I think that that's, you know, the joy here is uh, in, in, in also learning a humility where, um, you know, we're not these sort of enlightenment figures who must know everything about everything, uh, but in fact can be. Uh, co-producers of knowledge in the way that we walk, you know, we make the road by walking it and we learn things together. We co-produce as opposed to study at the feet of and bow down and worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of iconoclasm when it comes to uh, colonial capitalist uh, structures of knowledge, I think, can actually be very liberating um, because it doesn't mean that we're free to then just, again, go sort of Gwyneth Paltrow on everything uh, and just decide you know, we're making things up. But we are following you know, lines of knowledge and science uh, that have been laid down before us, but we can follow it as a peer, not as a master. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the, um, the, the message that we're offering in this book is that part of the, the work of liberation, the duties, the munera of liberation are uh, to, to actually uh, you know decenter ourselves and recognize that we're much more plural and, you know, and therefore ready to be schooled by so many more things than we, than, than we have allowed ourselves to be taught by. And, and that's, a, that's an exhilarating experience.
0: And you're right. It is it is complex, and it is challenging, um, and it is not the way our minds have been trained to work in a colonial capitalist cosmology. And it does take um, moving yourself into different kinds of experiences and different into different kinds of relationships and practicing. Um, for myself, I know that a big part of my um, continued project is to engage with music and to engage with music and different ways of knowing just to leave my mind open to different kinds of science and different kinds of um, narrative Um, and that's why you know the role for arts um, for understanding who we are in this moment is so critical um, to the work that we're talking about um, because it engages the imagination and it engages our ability to um, describe and make sense of where we are in, from where we have been to where we're going. So it really is um, training the mind, the body, the self to hold complexity, and that's
1: that's the whole point. Well, Raj and and Rupa, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for a great conversation.
1: Yes, thank you, Tanya. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you listen.